Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I am excited to be with you this Sunday afternoon. It has been a crazy month, January has. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about. I've been battling all kinds of stuff between allergy attacks, and I, I was pushing through some sickness for a while, and it's it's been kind of hairy over here, but I'm excited to be diving into our next uh, section of Romans this first week of February. And so without further ado, let us turn to Romans chapter 9, verse picking up in verse 8, and we're going to read all the way to verse 13. At this point in Romans chapter 9, Paul has defined God's election of Israel in very simple terms. And we were talking about how God chose Israel in the Old Testament out of all the other nations of the world to be recipients of his love. And now, Paul is expanding this concept of election by showing how God's election is realized through individuals, particularly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, let us start reading in verse 8. And it says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So we're going to pull that apart bit by bit. There's there's some big concepts in Romans 9. And I'm excited to be digging into this chapter. So we're going to start with Romans 9 verses 8 and 9. Paul is drawing on that example of Abraham. That um, not all of Israel is counted as Israel in a spiritual sense. Abraham was promised by God. That Sarah would have a son this time next year. We, we just read that. And we can read the whole story in Genesis 18. About Abraham who was the, he was the patriarch, that forefather of Israel. He was the, I guess you could say the first Israelite. And in Genesis 18, 10 through 14, it says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. We just read that, Paul quoted that goes on to say, And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. 
Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Much like how God promised the covenant to Israel, God, is all, God has also made promises to individuals. He promised a covenant son to Abraham through Sarah, and through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. But Abraham tried to make that happen by himself, and he had a child out of concerning methods. And so he went to his, his uh, servant, Hagar, and had an illegitimate son. And yet, God's purpose of a son through Sarah still came to be, still came to fruition. And Sarah had a son who was the heir of the promise, Isaac, and he would usher forth that Israelite lineage, and eventually the Messiah. The birth of Ishmael demonstrates our own attempts to make God's will come to fruition on our terms, and yet they did not expedite or alter God's sovereign will. That despite the Ishmael moments we may have of trying to strong-arm God's will, God's will is still God's will. And that brings us once again to the matter of free will. This is something we have been looking at in shallow terms for a few weeks. We haven't gone like a deep dive because it's a big philosophical concept that there is a lot of debate on. But I believe that free will and what the Bible says about election are, in fact, compatible. In fact, I would argue that a greater testament to the sovereignty of God is found in his ability to accomplish what he has decreed through free creatures. That God is sovereign, but he accomplishes his sovereign goals through a free people. That's, that's hard for us to wrap our heads around, but... Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith describes God's sovereignty in this way. And it says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And that's a bit of a mouthful. And part of what's being laid out in that confession of faith is um, philosophy. And in this scenario, some basic philosophy can be helpful to understanding the nature of the question of free will. The famed philosopher from ancient Greece, Aristotle, posed that there were four elements to causality, which is what causes things, how things happen. And so when things do happen, Aristotle argued, it is a product of four main factors. The material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. And there's different levels to each of these causes, different ways that they come about. The material cause basically means material, the out of which things happen. The formal cause is the form of what is. 
For example, the material cause could be the bronze used to make a statue, but the formal cause is the form of the statue, the way that that bronze is formed. And he goes into great detail on some of these other ones, but all that to say that there are levels of causes to a particular result. It's never as simple as either or. God is the primary cause of things, but we are that material cause. We are the product of the primary. We can operate as free creatures under the sovereignty of that primary. And we can sum all that up in very simple terms in Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That while we may be acting in a way that is motivated by evil, God is using that evil to bring out good. So while Abraham was trying to be the primary cause, he could not usurp that title from the Lord. And so God remained sovereign despite the panderings of his people. So then we come to verse 10, which says, And not only so, meaning not only with Abraham and Sarah, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is election in a different light. This is election in a different light, somewhat. We've talked about Abraham and how Abraham um, brought forth two nations through, one was through waiting on God, the other was trying to make things happen on his own. But with Rebekah, Two nations came forth, no adultery needed. And we read about this story in Genesis 25, verses 21 through 28. And it says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So Paul was stating that, this is reiterating what he said a couple of verses ago, that not all descendants of Abraham are counted as his offspring. He uses the example of Jacob and Esau. Esau was a descendant of Abraham. Yet he was outside the covenant, and his descendants were wicked and vile towards the Israelites. That despite the fact that he was born in the right family, he wasn't in the covenant. The promises did not abide with Esau. Because it's not passed down by lineage, it's passed down by that relationship with God. It goes on to say in verse 13, For Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That is, that's a rough statement right there. That is a bold statement. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And we don't like to think about God as hating people, but that is a strong word. And it is the right word. And it's actually a quote from Malachi, 
where it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, talking about the judgment of Esau and his descendants. And we read about um, his descendants called the Edomites, quite a bit in the Old Testament. But they were eventually taken out by God, that they were, they came under his judgment for their sins. And it says in Amos chapter 1, and thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, meaning for sins committed and for sins ongoing, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. If we continue reading the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob deceives Isaac to receive the birthright that was due to Esau. And so Jacob and Esau are at odds for much of their lives. But they were reconciled. But while Jacob and Esau were reconciled, their descendants were not. And there was a frequent animosity between the Israelites and the Edomites, which comes to a head in the prophets, when the prophets proclaimed judgment upon Edom. God's covenant was not automatically applied to Esau, for God covenanted with Jacob, who he later called Israel. God's punishment on Esau's descendants, the Edomites, was so severe that he tells Malachi that he hates Esau. It says in Malachi chapter 1, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Every single one of us comes into this world in bondage to sin, under the dominion of sin, much like the Passover in Exodus. There are many of us whom God comes in and rescues from that. And there are others, like Esau, like the Edomites, that for reasons beyond our ability to understand, he simply passes over. And this is one of the harder sides of this concept of election, is the people that are not elect unto life. Charles Spurgeon once was asked how God could hate Esau, which is a question I think every single one of us should have. That's a question that anybody with, with a pulse would have at some point, is how do you answer for God hating Esau? And Charles Spurgeon responded that his issue was not how God could hate Esau, but in how God could love Jacob. This is our same perspective. We are all Jacobs, undeserving recipients of God's love. This is what election means for us. That when we had no moral desire or ability to come to God, God became near to us. It says this in Ephesians, that we who were once far off have now been brought near. Perhaps a greater illustration of God's love in election is found in the book of Hosea. Hosea is an odd book that we don't always give a lot of time to. It's one of the minor prophets, so we, which means it's shorter. But we have a tendency to overlook those short books. But it's my, my belief that sometimes the really short books are the really important ones. And 
the Minor Prophets, there are such big gospel truths in those 12 short books. It's incredible. And Hosea is the first of those 12 Minor Prophets. And Hosea was a prophet. We don't know a whole lot about him. But the book of Hosea pretty much opens up with God telling Hosea to marry a prostitute. A promiscuous woman. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of promiscuity, and have children of promiscuity. For the Lord commits great promiscuity by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. What? When we read that, there's a, there's a collective moment of, what? This is what God called him to do. God is demonstrating a point through the life of Hosea, that he is taking Gomer out of the world into his family. It says in Hosea chapter 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. One of the problems with Israel is they kept going away. And when we read Hosea 1-3, through 3, this is Hosea's marriage with Gomer. Is he brings her into his family, and then she leaves. For reasons we don't fully know, she takes off, and she goes back to that life. And so Hosea, he goes and finds her. He pursues her, and he redeems her, and he brings her back home. And this is the kind of pursuit that God partakes in with us, that God pursues us as Hosea did, despite the fact that we keep turning away, that we keep going to the bales, God is pursuing us. And Dr. Steve Lawson makes these comments regarding the book of Hosea. In this real life story, God told Hosea to press on in his love for his adulterous bride, Gomer, despite her gross iniquity. Hosea's unconditional love for Gomer would beautifully portray God's unwavering love for his chosen ones, although they might be marred by great sin. The doctrine of election holds that God chooses to fix his heart upon his elect despite their defilements and perversions. His unconditional love towards these sinners is entirely undeserved. In response to this amazing love, John Calvin comments, Wonderful was the patience of God when he ceased not to love a people whom he had found to be so perverse that they could not be turned by many acts of kindness nor retained by any favors. That is, God chose his elect not because of them, but in spite of them. Such are the astonishing depths of the divine love behind God's sovereign electing grace. This is the picture of our redemption in God. While we are in the world, while we continually run back to the world, God pursues us and he takes us as his own. The unconditional love of Hosea is a model of how God loves his people. In love he predestined us to be his people, despite who we were. 
God shows us before we were impressive. He takes us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay there. And it and Hosea, the book of Hosea closes with these verses. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. The Lord says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Apostasy is a strong word. The Hebrew word that we translate as apostasy is meshuva. And it means apostasy, obviously, or faithlessness, a falling away, an intentional lifestyle of rebellion. It is a strong word that is only used a handful of times in, in the Bible. But this is how God redeems the meshuva of the world, the apostates of the world. Because the Bible says that all of us have the ability to know God, that his existence is plain to us. But we have all become fools by rejecting God. That we became futile in our thinking and our minds were darkened. But God redeems the apostates of the world such as you and I by his love and through his love. He pursues those who are not worth pursuing. He brings us into the family. He redeems sinners of whom I am chief. This is the God whom I worship. And you should too. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of his holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4. 4.